This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I am Brian. I'm Evan. And we're talking about News from Nowhere by William Morris, first published in a socialist magazine uh, entitled The Commonweal between January 11th and October 4th, 1890. And then I think in a hardcover later that year. And I'm pretty sure (laughs) that this is a response to an actual thing that happens at the beginning of the book. And also... Uh, a famous book that came out, uh, I think, three years before, called Looking Backward. Yep. Edward Bellamy. Yeah. Now, I've not read Looking Backward. I've read all about it, and I've read a lot of responses to it, but I've not actually read yep. Looking Backward. Is it worth reading? Uh, if you like these utopias, I think it's worth reading. It, it I've read it only for historical interest. And yeah. I guess that's how I, I kind of ended up coming at news from nowhere is I couldn't mm-hmm. I couldn't stop reading it as a as a you know a primary source as a historian would and that's kind of how you've read all these utopias I think it's 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 much more American in ways I, I can get into yeah I think mm-hmm. it's interesting ways that how American industrial history runs against the current of American I guess ideology or, or how Americans think about themselves mm-hmm it was uh, the yeah. third largest bestseller of all time uh, at, at that time. Uncle Tom's Cabin and Ben-Hur were its its competition there. Uh, and, of course, those are famous books still today. Looking backward, I think, made a massive splash in the intellectual zone of yes. uh, n- Europe and North America. And it's pretty much been forgotten except by science fiction authors who... You know, say, no, 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 no. Here's what you got wrong. And here's my version of it. And well, I, I But I do think it. lefties read it still. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a lefty, um, I guess. But well, I, I, for don't, instance, I haven't read it yet. There's a really interesting book, and there's a talk on YouTube you can just jump to and watch that to get the main idea. In fact, I haven't even really read the book yet. I haven't been able to get a hold of it. But it's uh, Frederick Jameson, who's, of course, a quite famous scholar of postmodernism and... And Marxism and things like that. He, his most famous book is on postmodernism, but it's coming from a Marxist point of view. But anyways, he wrote this recent book called An American Utopia. And he essentially has this idea of getting America to communism. And he's, of course, playing with utopianism when he does this, but his idea is to get America to communism via a universal army. And because the army socialist essentially so uh, uh, basically universal conscription oh could then be the window into yes. kind of universal well, that seems healthcare. to be the that seems to be the actual plan right every year the military budget goes up yeah <laughs> right and no and, that's not, that's that but it's the opposite of universal conscription because it's a volunteer force right and it's also one that is segmented very very strongly by geography and by class it's yeah. very different. Well, that's the current military. No, I'm so. saying like it seems to like if if you think of how uh, you know the army works very much like a you know a planned economy, right? Where you've right. got all these guys who are being issued helmets and being sent here and sent there, and it 
my understanding is that that that's what Bellamy's book is more like. Yeah, and that was Jameson's point was he was using Bellamy as kind of his his touchstone for this idea, and he thought this would because Americans fetishized the flag and the army so much. And I guess his model was more like the World War II generation, that greatest generation, right. or the Great Deal, you know, not the military we have now, the post-conscription military where only the poor serve. But, you know, he built on a lot. And I've just come across this so much just in leftist history writing. So I, I think people do read it outside mm-hmm. of science fiction. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, maybe it's that's also a very small circle of, of people, leftist historians. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in reading it. And I used to, uh, I skimmed it once when I was in college. Um, it's a big touchstone in uh, the history of utopias, of course. Um, and it's also it's also a nice example of the importance of fiction because it was not just a bestseller, but inspired Bellamy clubs all over the U.S. Yeah, right. You know, put this in. And the name, the, the, like a nationalist movement, he called it. Mm-hmm. Where it was called, the na- I think the Nationalists, uh, or National, I, f- I forget the real name of it, but I think it was just Nationalism, which I guess is really confusing to, well, it's a to different 20th time. century folks, but that's what he called it. Yeah, it's a different point. I, I, so one thing to think about is is how News From Nor- Nowhere is such a fierce reaction against it, and that this is an anti-industrial, uh, anti-centralized utopia. Mm-hmm. I mean, anti-industrial. I mean, including anti-machinery and and, uh, and everything involved in industry, anti-mass production, anti-factory, anti-scale. Yeah, they've all got scythes, right? When they go out in those fields, they don't yeah. have like combine harvesters. This is all and, manual labor. I mean, and they're beautifully, mm-hmm. beautifully crafted scythes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, handles on those scythes would be very decorative, right? Um, That's right. And, uh, yeah, there was just one line in Morris. I didn't finish the whole thing, to be honest, but I got through the first two thirds. Most of the utopia stuff, I think, mm-hmm. was dealt Most with of early the lectures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what he, um, there's a line where something like odious labor is automated or something, and then he, but it's still very pro labor. And maybe you guys know a little bit more about Morris because he was a craftsman, and yes. that seemed to have been his primary profession. So he had a very different attitude towards labor than Bellamy did. You know, he he was the I, I think he ran the uh, newspaper, the Commonweal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's a it's a fascinating situation. I mean, feels like everything's a lot smaller back then. With you know, was it his cousin who is Rossetti? Um, uh, the you know the um, who took his wife? Art yes. the artist and and then there's the. The lady who wrote the um, the fruit, the lesbian fruit poems. <laughs> mm-hmm. What the hell am I talking about? Uh, market, uh, Goblin Market, right? Um, which is an amazing piece. Like these, this is artists hanging out with artists, um, and they're political. And mm-hmm. you know, um, Eleanor Marx, you know, daughter of Karl Marx, is one of the contributors to this thing. This is like right after, you know, communism as a modern idea or even the word sort of becomes a thing and what you know i'm reading this book and i'm thinking why am i arguing the book (laughs) (laughs) because i i should like this stuff right i should like this stuff i'm in favor and i just kept thinking of all the problems that he's not addressing and there's one there's one line in the book about a boat that is powered 
Um, in in the audio drama adaptation, they say it's electric, which is it's set in the modern era, which you know, it, yeah, or, or uh, it's set it's in like the future, but the force power or the force, force power, right? Yeah. So yeah. it has some sort. Uh, you know, it's not coal powered, whatever it is. It's not polluting the river. You know, the fact right at the beginning of the uh, of the novel, the fact that there's salmon spawning in the Thames is like a is a, a beautiful thing, and there's you know. Mm. Uh, I mean, it is a beautiful thing. the The whole idea of this book is is about beauty, and and the subtitle is uh, a novel of rest, I think, something like that. Yeah, uh, an epoch. epoch of rest, right? Um, and he is really arguing, I think, very successfully against a a very strong theme then and still today of you know. You will not work unless you're uh, motivated uh, by threat, basically. <laughs> people have a tendency to be lazy. And I think that a lot of people believe this. And a lot of people um, might fit certain definitions of it. But I also think that he hasn't defined work very successfully in here, and yet I, I've read. Uh, there's a great book, and I'm trying. I never remember the name of it. I think it's a response to Bellamy um, by Mac Reynolds. You, you guys probably not read Mac Reynolds. A little no. bit. Okay, so like, he, he's, he's entirely forgotten today, picture. unfortunately. What are you going to say, Brian? Uh, he's a serious left-wing science fiction writer. Yeah, he was a social. He was like hardcore socialist, writing a ton of. Um, a ton of science fiction that had utopias and um, the concepts of utopias, you know, like how to deal with, like, here's a, here's a novel. Um, it, it, the one I'm thinking of, it might be called, um, it might have Looking Backward in the title, or maybe it's Equality in the Year 2000. Or, there's a whole series of these books, and I forgot which one it is. But one of them is, I remember, it starts off with the problem is everybody has degrees Everybody has a desire to work, and everybody gets a guaranteed universal income. And the big problem in the society is there's not enough work. And this is demonstrated by the fact that you know they're sitting around the table, and uh, the the drinks are delivered up through you know tubes under the table. You know you order at your table, and there's no waiter, right? So there's no crappy work. There's only good work. And this is a, a problem of of robotics basically that he's he's created a a utopia in which a lack of work is the problem and that is be solved by revolution <laughs> somehow i don't remember the outcome of the book but i do remember how striking it was that like in this book the the serious problem is a lack of work which is kind of crazy and I guess that's the idea behind this book is it's taking the opposite tack. The problem is not that there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of lazy bums and they're not willing to do it at the wages we set. <laughs> um, but rather, uh, there's not enough work, not enough quality work for everyone to appreciate. And, and that sort of the drudgery jobs are all eliminated somehow, magically. And I just think, well, even if you accept that idea somehow is working, you know, they, they've got primitive communism back somehow. I was also thinking, like, there's also, there's no, 
Like, how come there's no invasion, right? How come there's no starvation in some country and, and, the, and the people just get up and take their sides and start attacking the neighbors? Because these are real issues. You cannot just wipe, wipe the slate clean. You know, there was a revolution in every country in Europe. And basically, by the, the end of uh, the 19th century, almost every king is dead. You know, Kaiser doesn't go until 1918. But they're all pretty much gone, right? So what what isn't isn't this guy being like way 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 too naive? But he's a utopia. He's writing a utopia. I mean, there, there's something kind of religious. I mean, this is one of the least religious feeling utopias I've come across. Certainly, Bellamy is this, and Bellamy comes from this Calvinist New England kind of clergy background. Like his parents were actually, or his father was like a clergyman. And you could even go back to like Dante as kind of a utopianist, right? He goes to these different adventures. There's always kind of a quest, you know, in these these types of stories. And it's not meant to be a model or or a, something that's achievable. It, it is supposed to be sort of like heaven. I mean, no, no, nowhere, of course, is utopia, right? Yeah, right. That, that I I was like. Oh, that's what the title is like. News yeah, utopia from, means nowhere. Yeah, also yeah. means good place and no place, right? Yes, that's the etymology. Yeah, so that's clever. Um, and, and and the funny thing is, is this is being published in a newspaper, right? So if you if you you're looking at the, I, I got out the original newspaper. I'm looking at the columns, you know, and the, I'm reading through the the headlines as I'm assembling it, and. It's it's right smack up against articles about uh, police brutality and you know working for this great idea called the eight hour work week which hey somehow we got I wonder how that happened and then the magazine you know folds uh, after um, some dynamiters get <laughs> imprisoned and comes back as a new magazine with a new title called the Anarchist right so yeah. they're definitely this is right this is news in a certain sense this is a guy who is, he's trying to change the world uh, with a, you know, his own newspaper and trying to get people excited about these ideas. And then I, I feel this this book and I'm like, I like it, uh, but I don't think it's very realistic. I mean, I just don't yeah, think again, he understands economics and, and foreign relations as well as I want him to. Yeah, I think really think that's not the, the point. I mean, there's a reason Marx criticized the, the, the quote-unquote utopian socialists as being you know, pie in the sky and kind of almost bourgeois in their kind of imaginations. But I think the function of utopia is to posit a possibility. And it's you know, like, obviously, this whole system is not something we're going to see. But I, I think the, the, the thought experiment here is, is the world we live in is not the only possible world. Yes. And it, historians sort of know this. And because they can go back and say, well, you had the Greek polis, and you had the medieval commune, and you had empire and nation states, and like things that we take for granted, like the nation state or the prison or the police, capitalism, are all pretty novel things historically, right? But what the utopians do is then kind of project on the future and just say like, you know, that's why these novels always, like Bellamy has the same thing, like people are baffled at each other when they're talking, right? Across in the The time traveler is always like, this doesn't make any sense. And they're like, well, your world way doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of the little humor that's in these kind of works is often people talking past each other or mm -hmm. kind of laughing at each other's way of life. 
but it's all about there is alternatives. So I, I think the larger u- utility of utopia is not to say this is a model we should pursue or this is a, you know, you know, we should start to set up these institutions or break down these issues in the way that is presented in the utopia. It's to say that the world we live in is not written in stone. Mm-hmm. There's, um, yeah, I mean, there's a long, long, you know, like 500 years of thinking about this. Yeah. Um, and and the uses of utopia are so so interesting. There was a, you know, a German Marxist named uh, Ernst Bloch who had this great idea that uh, you, know, you look for utopia in the minutia of everyday life. Right. It gives you a way of thinking about a better world and isn't necessarily a, a blueprint, um, but just that impulse to find uh, a sweeter and better life. And then glimpsing those, you can build that into a vision, which then can lead to action. Um, I mean, then there's, uh, you know, there's Kim Stanley Robinson's idea that utopia, well, he was comparing science fiction and fantasy to historical fiction and said, uh, you know, it's, it's doing something similar in that you're, you're inventing a, a world that doesn't exist and that people don't have access to. Um, and, you know, in a sense, you, you trying to make sense of Henry Tudor's world is like you trying to make sense of Morris's 21st century mm. uh, yeah, you, I agree with that. Well, how come you don't have any prisons? Where are your iPods? I mean, you bring up Kim Stanley Robinson, and I, I still think of his Pacific Edge as being, you know, sort of the the model of a of a almost feasible science fiction utopia that is, yeah, it's almost feasible, right? Um, it, it's what. I think of is you know let's not have pollution everywhere right and why aren't those cargo ships hauling uh, bunker fuel across the ocean using sails right and you know when the po- political situation gets all fucked up the main problem is like is that is that uh, arroyo going to get uh, eroded <laughs> you know like it they're they're small problems and in here we have a few of those. But I just, I don't, like, one of the things he, he, he's done is he's eliminated currency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as much as, you know, actual communist governments have come out of, uh, out of a tradition and a, and a, not a tradition, I guess a, um, a, a making manifest what is actually uh, in these sort of utopian ideas, um, they don't give up currency. I mean, North Korea has a currency, I'm sure. I don't know what it is. It's probably uh, the North Korean won. But um, you can't... Uh, can you really get rid of currency? In, like that, That's sort of my problem. Is He is basically looking at the world and says, everyone is an artist. <laughs> and well, David Graeber certainly thinks we can get rid of currency. He wrote a book called Debt. And he's an anarchist, too. So, Who is this? You know, David Graeber. Oh, yeah. A, he wrote this book called Dead. His, his newest book is the, the Bullshit Jobs book, which I haven't yet oh, gotten Oh, yeah, I want to read that. But his earlier book, this is the one that made him kind of famous. He, he published this around the time of Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, and it was Debt. And there he, he talked, because he's an anthropologist, and he talked about how these societies before money were we're not about barter, that barter is something that people go back to when they have currency, but the system breaks down. Mm-hmm. And they only could think of things in terms of how much does this cost? So three chickens for your cow or whatever. Right. But actual societies before currency were basically debt 
societies where everyone was in debt to each other, you know. So it was more like the example I think he gives either in his talk or in his book is someone will say like, oh, my, you know, I really need my cow died. I really need a cow. And the neighbor says, here, take my cow. And then maybe two years later, the neighbor comes back and says, you know, my son really loves your daughter. And then then there's a swap of, you know, can you pay it back a little bit? And it's it's all like debt relations. And his argument was with the gold standard, we had a firm currency, but now we're getting to a system where we're back to kind of everything is debt, right? Because money is essentially a product of banks loaning out money to people. I mean, that where a lot of our money comes from, yeah. that are national debt. And it's we're swapping around debts. And, and we do it in a way that makes us think that this money has real value, but it, it's actually kind of made up. It's all just fancy ledgers. I, I, I spent a lot of t- a lot of the time during the lectures, like thinking, uh, or I guess the big long lecture in the middle at the museum, thinking about how you know if I was plunked down into this world, I would get a cutter, you know, um, and get some some guys who really like sailing and don't want to be paid, and I would load up on surplus goods in in uh, you know I don't know wine or whatever that. You know, just walk into those markets and say, hey, neighbor, wow, that's great looking wine. And I'd load it onto my cutter with my my crew of very happy dudes and then, you know, sail it off to uh, Italy and and do some trading. And mm. and even if even if that ends up being like, who's going to build that? Like, where's the, the 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 big projects they have that the way they do things in this book are like, um let's uh, rebuild this cathedral let's re- redo this road and everybody's happy about it and I, I i have this vision you know from the cuban revolution of uh che Guevara out in the field uh with a scythe happily scything all day right and and they have film of this right <laughs> they've got mm-hmm. them out in the field and then oh it's it's not scything time it's time to go fight in the jungles and liberate our neighbors right um it, the the whole thing of this book is it is a it is a wholly a fantasy and yet it's it is quite nice to think about and I think we can like I think we can have utopia in our own lives Brian you live on a, uh, a homestead right this is this is like how my parents when I was born I was born on like uh, Laskiti Island which was or I was born in a hospital but my parents lived on Laskiti Island which is like it's still to this day, it's full of hippies um, who, you know, they're back to the landers, that whole back to the land movement where, yeah, no, you know, there's a store on the island, but most everything is just, you know, some guy say, I got extra milk today and here's three eggs. And they just swap them over with their neighbors, right? And, oh, my cucumbers are doing great. And, oh, that marijuana plant looks great. Can I have some? <laughs> right? That's, um, that's basically how... I imagine they they're still living there, and I, I believe that that's that's the case. And then the real economy there is like two or three guys live there year round and take care of all the rich people's mansions, like just go in and check and make sure that they haven't been broken into, and you know water the indoor plants, and and then they go back to you know their lives. Your home your homestead isn't the, your income, right? That isn't the way you live. But right. I mean, we we considered it, and and we've tried a few times. Um, 
to make money at it. But um, that's required on the one hand, that's required a, a lot more scale um, than uh, than we had time for. Um, another is that we live in a much more challenging area than um, than Morris's Thames. I mean, we have snow from October through May. Um, so that limits what we can grow. Um, but the other thing is we're, we're isolated. I mean, so if we didn't have, if, if we were only going by horse, it would take half a day for us to get to the nearest town. Um, and that's how people used to live here in this town in the 18th century, 19th century, um, you know, by carts. Um, and we would be, well, this is the point I was going to get to actually in our, in our talk. Um, we would have to shed every 20th century technology, um, you know, because we depend, just, just think about, um, internet, you know, it requires a serious technology base to get here and it's not very good. Um, the roads have to be maintained, uh, vehicles. So if we, if we just skip all of that and we go back to 1800s levels of technology, um, it might be doable. But at a very, very small scale, at a very small population. Yeah, the Amish and, and the Mennonites have done exactly that, right? It's, it, it is a lifestyle choice. And you might say that they live in a kind of – I don't think they – they do have an external economy, right? But I don't think there's an internal economy. They do their barn raisings and stuff in as right. a group. Well, again, this, this comes down to scale. I, I was thinking of this um, uh, guy I know has a new novel coming out. Uh, this is a Canadian science fiction writer, uh, Kurt Schroeder, um, oh, yeah. and the uh, it's called the Million. And the idea is that uh, human population drops down to one million. And uh, he wants to you know think about that. Would that you know what kind of world would result mm -hmm. uh, at scale? And I, I think it's part of Mars. I mean, you know, it's one of the things that I think he kind of glosses over is that Britain looks pretty massively depopulated. You yes. know, our our, our hero is a little shocked that London is gone, and now you've got a couple of small towns instead. Uh, you know how you how you get to that point is is pretty interesting. But but it's also this is something again that appeals I know to a lot of people is that is that this is a massive reaction against technology, modern technology, um, and that comes out of Morris, you know, who was who despised industry, um, hated mass production, which is why he helped kick off the arts and crafts movement. And it's kind of ironic now that you can get mass-produced Morris wallpaper. Right? <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, I think it, you, you see traces of this throughout science fiction and fantasy. I mean, uh, Tolkien, for example, you know, who hated industry. Um, and that's a key point in, uh, in Lord of the Rings, which, in fact, the anti-industrial climax of the novel is left out of the Peter Jackson movies, I think, quite deliberately. Um, but that, I mean, time and again in this novel, we get the sense of, Industry being bad, what's better is hand carving wood, you know, making stone or I mean, working with stone, um, you know, hand mowing the hay. Um, you know, the, there's a point with uh, when our, our hero is going is boating with Ellen and he observes that boats haven't changed. You know, you still have rudders and stuff. Um, I mean, I think it, I, I can see the, the emotional appeal to it, but it. it, it as you said, Jesse, it's too easy to find all the, all the flaws. I mean, just just for instance, thinking about health. Um, yeah, you know, none of I was I, I, like the whole like chemotherapy doesn't exist, right? <laughs> this is this no. is there's a <laughs> well, there's a local healer, and he only works when he wants to. 
right? right. Uh, oh my god. There's even a line somewhere where he says like we live it doesn't matter how much we live as long as we live well, right? Right. It's, like how long so, we live doesn't as well. That's right. So guess, crib death is fine. Uh death and childbirth is fine. Um you know, how you do surgery when you don't have any uh, anesthetics beyond, uh, well, let's just be generous and say opiates are involved, um, mm-hmm. you know, natural opiates. But besides that, how do you do dentistry? Um, oh, you know, yeah. do, do kidney stones kill you? I mean, I do take the idea that living this lifestyle is healthier for you. I agree. And I found that myself. Sure. But that's not going to take care of cancer. Um, well, it's the bringing up the the childbirth thing is interesting because when these when men talk and you know, kind of get to this, I don't I don't know if Morris is primitivist, but when when they kind of move in that direction of primitivism, you know, it it's it's probably easier for men to imagine that than 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 women, right? And I think Jesse, we talked about this in one of the Philip K. Dick things about you know can technology be liberatory or not? Mm-hmm. And like the washing machine is something that really was liberatory for, for women because right. women had to do that work it's and so child, you know, you know, people can say like, Oh, I'm going to do a natural childbirth, but you know, an epidural is really wonderful. At least I've heard, you know, and it makes that whole process easier and why have unnecessary pain. Right. But maybe for men, they, they don't imagine that. So well, it's, it's so. interesting. I mean, you think, you think about, at least in the U.S., where fantasy novels are often gendered female, and you have mm-hmm. uh, more women writers, and they are following this novel, and that mo- the overwhelming majority of them are pleasant imaginations of the medieval world. I mean, Morris oh. loved the Middle Ages. He wrote about them. He wrote, um, you know, Viking sagas. Um, and early in the novel, time and again, the narrator compares houses and clothing to 14th and 15th century style. Um, and you know, that's, that's often where most fantasy is these days. Um, but, um, but I agree there's, there's a, you, in contemporary back to the land literature, um, there's, this is often a problem. Um, uh, what's her name? Wrote, uh, the Poisonwood Bible, um, Barbara Kingsolver. Yeah. Had a nonfiction book about going back to the land. It's a terrible, terrible book for all kinds of reasons. Um, one of them is she never addresses health at any point. And, um, she repeatedly says in the book, anybody can do what I'm talking about. Anybody. Um, and there are other problems. I mean, she mentions that she and her husband just happened to have 2000 acres of land. Um, you know, just like everybody, but, <laughs> but the health, the health issue is, is crucial. I, I think if you look at technological utopias, that's one of the things they almost always address. You know, you look at uh, the culture books, by Ian banks and naturally people, you know, they can, they have all these technologies that can help them with their moods, with injuries, with lifespan, everything else. Um, I, I think the anti-technology part of this book is just is so crucial, and for me, such a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I want to jump in here quick. Well, I guess I got I got a bit of a few things to say on this. Actually, I mean, there's the, to go back to Jesse's point about currency and the gift economy, and how do we get to a, kind of a gift economy? It seems to, and I, I've thought about this a lot. It seems to require post scarcity. At some point, right? There yeah, has, it's a, this this novel seems scarcity. a lot more plausible as long yeah. as you assume that everything's robotic. You know, the the dishwasher and the and the floor vacuumer and the you know the auto dock at the hospital. This this novel's totally possible. 
Right. Now, yeah, there's, so there's two ways to get to post-scarcity, right? One would be kind of a primitivism where you had a much reduced population or whatever, right? And there, there are, I've read stuff about the Paleolithic when the argument there is like during the Ice Age, there was post-scarcity essentially because there weren't right. that many people. Right. And there was plenty of animals and roots yeah. and berries. We don't want to go back there because of the human toll that such a transition would take. But, you know, Morris maybe wants to go back to something medieval at least. Now, this is why Bellamy, I think, is is we need to keep him in the conversation because he's taking for granted industrialism and a huge population in cities and bureaucracies and all the kind of all in modernity. And he, he does a better job, I think, of doing that. And I, I can't find the page where he talks, Bellamy specifically talks about medicine, but that's taken care of, but it's because it's a high-tech, you know, industrial post-scarcity, right? And I guess if, if you want to give Xi Jinping and the Chinese the benefit of the doubt, that they're at least saying we can't get to communism until we reach a certain level of wealth, right? right? And the Chinese I talked to basically reinforce that, that line, that until we're all wealthy, we can't even talk about socialism or communism. It's funny. my Because uh, there'll always be inequality. <clears throat> my friend Steen, uh, I was mm-hmm. telling him about this book yesterday, and I said, oh, it's by William Morris, and it's a, it's a utopia. And he says, I bet that guy was born wealthy. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, I believe you're right. <laughs> you know, like, the, you can't well, even, you can't even, like, conceive of a guy who'd be so concerned about this stuff if if he's not already not concerned about certain stuff right well yeah, yeah it's interesting i mean that's that's the 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 um you know the the trust fund baby who becomes a hippie the um sure. and this is the, tw- the 21st century so that in the u.s we decided that we're going to ramp up income inequality and wealth inequality in a big way and we're we're generally behind that and so you've got the phenomenon of uh what's her name uh eat pray love of, oh. Uh, oh yeah, Gilbert. Mm-hmm. So you get the you know, the euphemism is upper middle class um, people who then pursue spiritual enlightenment through massive amounts of inter- international travel. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I think uh, you're 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 absolutely right to bring up the the Chinese example, and you just gave me a strange, fun historical vibe, which is um, in the 1990s when the uh, uh, Clinton team took the U.S. Democratic Party to the right. Uh, one of the way, arguments they made uh, for resisting redistribution, which they saw as the left democratic um, idea, was that you had to grow the economic base more um, okay. before you redistribute it. Um, so it's kind of nice to see like the post-Deng Xiaoping China aligned with the Clinton mentality. <laughs> you know, that's not, that makes sense. But um, but you but, but in in Morris's world, he it's a very it's close to neo-primitivist. I mean, they're not Paleolithic; they're medieval, um, mm. and and they keep making that case that people are very, very happy and satisfied with what they have. There's this bit at the end when Dick is uh, talking about the turn of the seasons and how powerful they are, and how much he he invests in that emotionally. And our narrator is like, "Well, oh, that's a little weird." He's like, "No, no, no, really. I I went through that myself when yeah, when, sure." Living up here, I I feel every turn of the season intimately, um, you know, and I I feel resentful You're when I travel. It. You're in it. It's not like in the city where it's oh, it's a little cold today, and you don't notice, you know, that it's 
you know, literally every tree has no leaves on it anymore, right? And then, and then the the water is frozen on the ground in the morning, and and it wasn't like that yesterday. Exactly, exactly. And then you can feel the anticipations of it and graded really, really finely. But then you know you get also their their the focus from Morris is this turn to handicraft and how people love making and using sides that they love making and smoking pipes and that's the um that's all they see and they don't they find all that meaning in it again and again happiness satisfaction pleasantness that's what morris keeps saying that this is these are people who are satisfied by this that this works for them and he is really he is pointing to a real phenomenon right i I always, uh, you know, I have a bunch of cheaty little things I use to teach my students how to do, you know, write essays really quickly <laughs> without any ideas in their head. You just, okay, you just remember uh, happiness is the exercise of vital powers through lines of excellence in a life affording them scope. And then we go through the three examples, uh, eagle with a broken wing and a horse with a broken leg, you know, and a, and a, and a shipwright with no wood, right? You know, like these are unhappy people, and then you say what, what, or what unhappy things, and then what they are. Like we really do. He is pointing to something real. When we do a really good job making something ourselves, like a bookshelf or a, 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 a loaf of bread, we take great, immense enjoyment in that production, and that's a real thing that you can't get by buying some bread, or you know, you know. Quite true. Quite true. Mm-hmm. You know, trading even for tr- trading for bread is is maybe better, but you know, making that bread and and achieving that beautiful bread smell and that bread taste. Oh, there's nothing better when you made it. That's the greatest thing. He's pointing no, to something real. No, it's 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 completely true. It's completely true. Um, but but also we run into that utopian problem and I, I had set of of people for whom it doesn't work I, I had hopes for this at the very end there was a group called what are they called the resistors the refusers right the uh, the obstinates or something like that right they wouldn't go along with the haymaking haymaking yeah, schedule they got a more interesting project so you think okay this is good but this is the the classic problem of utopia what if you don't like that you know what if you can't make bread or or what if your, you know, your uh, real skills, your real sense of being, has to do with technology? What do you if you're a race car driver? What if you're a computer sure. programmer? You want somebody um, drilling that drill into the ground, so that you can get the oil to run run your race race car, and you want other people to help you build a track, and. He, he really he's he's completely forgotten the tragedy of the commons you know like like literally oh, some yes. guy's gonna go out in the field and say no no this is my land i'm raising sheep to sell to uh some guy in spain and you say but this is our land where's the violence where's the threat of violence that inevitably happens when starvation in some area happens or you know some encroachment happens and and that guy picks up that scythe and goes after somebody this is Right. It's so fantastic as to make you know all the modern medieval uh, fantasy, you know, with princesses and towers to to be much more believable. But you know, there's this there's this deep claim, and I, I never asked Fred Jameson about this. I've only met him a few times, but there's this deep deep claim that dates back to Marx, and it became central to the Soviet project in the 20th century, 
which is that if you can reform the material conditions of life, people will change. That they will actually, they're, you're, you're retraining them. People will adapt in different ways. And, and the Soviets were, were you know, keen on the idea of the new Soviet man. And this would be somebody for whom capitalism just wouldn't be part of it. They, they, weren't, they wouldn't have to fight the temptation to become an entrepreneur. It just wasn't part of their world. You see it and, in the art. It's so, it's, their art is so expressive of yeah. that, right? The guy with a big hammer on his shoulder looking up at the stars. Right. As, a, as exactly. a rocket goes up, and he says, "I had a part in that," right? You know. Well, so it, this is this is this is where anti-communists really come in, and they would, for a long time, they would say, yeah, "Well, you can't defy human nature," and they kept, you know, they, they you will hear this again and again. And what's interesting is that past fifty years or so, you've seen people on the right actually move to sociobiology by saying that their model of how human biology works and DNA and evolution explains social arrangements as a result. Um, and which is kind of fun to see that appear alongside right wingers who are, you know, creationists, but, um, <laughs> but it's Jordan Peterson. I'm thinking, well, I'm yeah, uh, that, that's a really good example. And it's addressed in this book very slightly, right? That Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm. women in Norway like to be nurses more than, uh, right. well, are more free to be nurses, which is what they want to be. And I think he's totally right about this. But people do have dispositions generally based on their genders. You know, like uh, there's just something about women's nature that wants to, in general, not in every specific, want to be more nurturing than dudes. Dudes like going out in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. It's just how dudes are. And it's not every dude, of course. But he, he addresses that in here. You know, women do like doing this stuff and men do like doing that stuff. And uh, obviously men like writing these uh, utopian science fiction novels a lot more <laughs> than women do because there's a hell of a lot more men writing them. Well, um, I was thinking about Herland. That's a 1915 uh, yes. book that came out yeah. in the exact same method as this one, right? It's published in a self-published newspaper, right? Um, in serial... And it just, you know, it steamrolls a whole bunch of ideas into a, you know, a pretty interesting book, and it is, it is progressive and and fascinating and a utopia. Um, it's it's like 25 years later, but it's doing the exact same thing. It's it's trying to really spark the kind of love and aesthetic. There's a there's a long tradition of uh, of women's utopias and uh, feminist utopias, along with women's dystopias and feminist dystopias. Um, we go back to Cavendish and this blazing world, which is I want to say 1650. Oh, um, and I mean, there's a lot of these you can go, you can you can find. Um, I mean, most notoriously right now would be you know Handmaid's Tale is a dystopia, um, explicitly feminist. Um, but I, I, I think you're, you're right. You've, you've, you've punctured my, my theory a little bit um, because I, I think overall Morris is saying if you have this revolution, this deep social transformation, then people will change, except women seem to be more likely to be serving food to people. <laughs> they like it. Yeah, he even, I remember that, that whole section where they're it's like women just revert back to these conventional roles, right? And it's the narrator or our, our our hero, who's like, you know, the feminist, right? Questioning whether 
Like, why would women want to do these jobs? I, w- I want to point out how funny. He's coming out from like a 19th century feminist point yeah, of view. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because he's arguing with himself the whole time. The name of the main character is William Guest, or he says, call me Guest, yeah. right? Um, and uh, his age is 56, I believe. <laughs> and guess how old Morris was at the time? I did the math on this. It was it was him, right? It's him. Okay. Yeah. It's totally him. Um, well, and so he's he's so, doing a very cute wink and a, a wink and a nod. Um, but the whole book is him saying, "Well, what about this issue? Uh, well, we'll solve it this way." And and isn't she? I mean, the sp- amount of time spent on sort of the romance angle is uh, is is almost what makes it a novel rather than a, a series of lectures and a and a tour up a river. Well, there's there's the nice the nice part where uh, you follow Dick and Clara and their relationship and you get bits of it. I love. It must have been incredibly risque for 1880, 18, excuse me, 1890 to uh, have that scene where we finally get to the center of the novel when a uh, guest meets the uh, old man in the museum. And uh, Dick and Clara run off to a room to quote be together. Right, unquote. right. I didn't. And, uh, I didn't even think of what that meant, but you're right. Of course, that's what it is. Um, the the fact that they they didn't divorce, but they you know she left him. So there's still problems in Utopia, right? So sometimes girls make mistakes <laughs> about who they're they're in love with. Um, well, that's where yeah, that's where relationship the, stuff is really interesting. I hope we can get to that. But the yeah. whole marriage thing. <laughs> It's, but have any of you read Marty by no. Melville? No. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, I, most people think it's a mess, and, and it sort of is, but it's it's a, it's a weird type of utopia. So oh. it's actually kind of a sequel to Taipei and Omu, Melville's first two novels, but then it just kind of goes wild. It kind of breaks from reality, and then we have our, our character just kind of wandering around the Pacific, chasing after a girl, which I was thinking of when I was, you know, going through this this book, News from Nowhere, kind of the on water, right? In this case, it's the Thames. Right. Kind of following a girl. In Marty, though, he never gets her. Her name's Ela, and it's kind of, she becomes like a MacGuffin that he's chasing throughout the whole novel. And he's going to utopia, or not, they're not all utopias, but he's going to different societies throughout, and they all have their own, social system and often they're copies of european states or you know like one is obviously britain one is obviously america but then he finally gets the character starts to get to actual real utopias one's like a christian utopia and one is really the best it seems and the other characters like we should stay here we should hang out here and the character at the end the narrator just goes off searching for Ela at the end you know following the girl for you know there's something better always. So it's almost like a critique of utopia mm-hmm. in a way that there's always going to be something better that we should Sounds chase after. Yeah. And that's something I really like about Melville's early novels before he gets to like before Moby Dick. It's it's always trying to search for something better. My, one of my favorite Melville novels is Omu because it's about a guy who basically gets a job, quits it, gets another job, quits it. And the final scene of that novel is like a failed job interview. And then in the end, he's like, <laughs> you can't get that. She's trying to get a job like in a court of some Polynesian princess. And she's like, I don't want you. So the, the final scene is him going off to the next quest. And that kind of leads into Marty, which then becomes the fantasy novel in the, in the series. Wow, that's really interesting. That's um, M-A-R-D-I for listeners. Yeah. And it's subtitled A Voyage Thither. Which is a great. Yeah, it's tough to read. It's it's not really well received. I don't know how many people actually read that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did a little review of it on my when I had a YouTube channel 
active. It's not really active now where I talk about it. It's on my podcast, too. There's a- and I think there's something really interesting in this. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of American frontierism in a way. Like, you know, if Kentucky Absolutely. stinks, you go off to Oklahoma. And when that stinks, you, you go off to Nevada or something. No, completely. You always got a new frontier. Yeah, it's definitely the idea. I mean, that's uh, that's what's at stake in um, even Moby Dick. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you leave the oldest part of the U.S. and go to the newest part of the world. Um, no, I, I haven't. I haven't heard anybody talk about those books beyond Melville scholars. Um, but it's yeah, it'd be fun to go back and, and work through them again. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the back of my mind. I'll, I'll probably get to it someday. As I when I get back to history, I want. I got this. I want to write a book or at least try called suspicious persons which all be about castaways and deserters and things in the pacific and the white working class across the pacific essentially suspicious persons actually comes from the police blotter in the shanghai newspaper where all these sailors (laughs) who are arrested would be called suspicious persons that's why they were thrown in jail Um, the usual suspects yeah but I have a like a chapter in there where I just want to deal with these early Melville novels because they're all about these people in the Pacific bouncing around here and there. Some are content kind of setting up a kingdom for themselves on some island, growing potatoes or whatever, or, you know, or working for some Polynesian king. And it's, it's just really fascinating kind of – it's almost an anti-work ethos. And, of course, Morris is not anti-work, but – you make you know. me think of Bartleby the Scrivener too, because that's, yeah, that's an anti-work. That's the one player. everyone goes to when they think of Melville's anti-work yeah. thesis. I actually did a search for this, but his early novels are all like the very first thing that happens in Typee. His first novel is a guy deserting and justifying why he should desert from this contract. You know, he signed a contract to serve on this whaling ship, and he decides very quickly this stinks. This ship sucks, so I'm going to leave. And then he goes off to meet. He'd rather be with the cannibals, risk his life with the cannibals than be on the ship. That was the real issue, right? So sailors were always defecting to the native communist, primitive communism, because it was it was paradise, right? Paradise. There's no worry about uh, the the fruits on the tree, right? The only time they that that's bad is when you've got a toothache, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just the fact that you, you almost don't even need a house. You can live in the atmosphere that women are young and beautiful and happy. And uh, that was a, a serious issue. And uh, I want to read that book. I, I hope you do write it because that sounds fascinating. I, I want to also talk about work and uh, traveling up the Thames. Um, in the context of a novel that came out the year before, which I think is probably the opposite of this book, um, it's called Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. You guys read this book? Only a Not at all. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Brian, what did you say? Only only a little bit of it. I, I was amused, but I, I haven't gone back to it. Oh, it is so funny. It is so hilarious. Um, it's about three men who... Uh, at the beginning of the book, um, one of them, uh, he, he feels like he's got every disease. He went to the library to look up what kind of disease he had. Um, and then he went through the whole book and he found that he had everything except for maid's knee. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes to the doctor and he says, you know, as he's walking to the doctor's office, he says, uh, to himself, you know, the medical students are going to get so much use out of me because, I have everything, and they're gonna. I'm. I'm gonna be the model for all diseases, and he's very happy about this idea. And then the doctor examines him, 
writes him a prescription. He takes it to the to the chemist. The chemist says, I don't have any of these things. Um, <laughs> hands him back the note. And it just says, you know, uh, stop thinking so much. Uh, drink drink uh, uh, a small beer every six hours and a, and a steak every six hours. Um, and go away from where you are. right? And so he and his three equally foolish doofuses get <laughs> there get in a boat and go up the Thames with the dog and it's just a series of ridiculous uh, pastoral incidents that have no consequence but it is a a journey up the river where they're basically camping and stopping at, at the pubs and you know it <laughs> rains and they can't get the tent up and um, they, you know, the food spills into each other, and it's okay. It's a Madeira cake now, right? It used to be a muffin and a Madeira. Now it's a Madeira cake. So it's it's like the opposite of this book in that it's it's told from a gentleman's sort of. I don't have anything to do all day, and uh, I don't. There's no gambling games going on uh, this week, so I I don't know what to do. I'll, I'll go to the library and see what's wrong with me. <laughs> Just go on a vacation, and. And it's so the opposite of this book, but it, it's it's all, all it's also about the beauty of of just spending time away from work. But it can only be done, really, by reading the book. Because the guy who wrote it, Jerome K. Jerome, was not as happy as he makes out, you know, his characters in this book. He he was. I I just bring it up because it apparently the year after, which is 1890. Um, the amount of boat purchases on the Thames, like licenses, went up by 50%. The book was a huge, huge smash, right? And I, I can't, I, I can't say that it ex- definitely influenced um, what we're seeing here. But that boat journey, you know, with everybody sculling all the time, and the girls sculling, and the guys sculling, and uh, your sculling's not as good as my sculling. <laughs> um, there's something uh, a very um, uh, it is like what's that's what they do at Oxford, right? And Cambridge is mm-hmm. they, they just scull all day. That's that's their that's their being in touch with nature and work. Now you're making me think of other completely inappropriate questions. Uh, um, so you know, I now I'm 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 reminded of uh, the Riddle of the Sands, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, 1900 right, novel. which is is. Uh, exactly the same thing as gentlemen going out in the countryside and saying, "Hey, we'll, we'll solve uh, the invasion problem." <laughs> right? I guess, I, I guess this is this is me bringing bringing the horror part to the podcast because you know, you know, he goes to uh, uh, you know he's bored and he gets this mission. It turns out to stumble upon a German invasion of Britain, which he gets to you know defeat. Um, and then, of course, the classic. Uh, uh, Blackwood uh, novella, The Willows. Yeah, there you go. Two guys going boating on the Danube, and they find something extraordinary. Um, there's, a, there's a long tradition of this, of going to the sea, going to the water to make a utopia. I mean, that's Huck Finn uh, to an extent. Sure, sure. Yeah, he goes off to the west at the end of that novel. Well, it's after the Huck Finn, right? Yeah. So I, that's what's so weird about this book. I'll just, just, I mean, you say is that he. This is the territory they've lit out for. This is the Marquesas. This is the, this is that one island where you can live on breadfruit. And and he imagines the entire world is that. Yep. 
And it, it's just it, – it, it, notice that it only really works if you're an island in the middle of the Pacific and you're uncontacted by the Europeans who basically come in and take your fucking island, right? And turn you right, on to yeah. slaves so that you wor- are work at making pineapples for you know, some market that you don't know anything about. It, it it's so it's so distant from from uh, a sort of a plausibility that I almost hesitate to to put it out there and say you know look at this everybody because it makes it makes uh, socialism which I think is a very good thing and uh, people should be uh, wholeheartedly working towards um, seem like it's like fluffy headed when it it, it really isn't. It's 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 hard headed. It's just cheaper to do a lot of things through the government than it is, you know. Other ways. This this one says we won't need governments, right? That wasn't that the whole theory about communism is that it's one day the government will wither away, right? And we'll all be yeah, just I like keep, we are I here. I keep flipping back and forth on this this kind of anarchist or kind of more Stalinist uh, approach. You know, sometimes I really understand Xi Jinping's what he's trying to do. You know, and when I think about like the ecological problem, and there's certainly a lot of, there's like an ecological, like I think readers now can look at Morris's work from an ecological lens and, and kind of be attracted it's, to it. But isn't the solution to the ecological problem at some level technological and through organization and mobilizing resources in a proper way? And, it, you know, like, isn't, shouldn't the green movement be like more technological and less romantic and more hard-headed it's it's very interesting i was thinking about how cultural like like a lot of it he it could be argued that it's all cultural rather than it's uh you know it's against human nature because all sorts of weird things are within human nature's possibility we've done all sorts of weird things you know uh, religiously and other otherwise that may, seem to make not a heck of a lot of sense you know all the great megaliths of of the ancient world are hard to understand unless you know you say there's some rich guy who wants this giant temple for himself being built, and there's that's probably not what was going on, right? You know, you don't build uh, Stonehenge because because some rich guy wants to measure the stars. I don't think. I don't think you could. I mean, you could argue that that's what happened. But that's the same argument for the pyramids, right? You know, they just got all these slaves and they whipped them and, or, you know, they paid them or whatever. It could be, like, what's missing for me in this book is, like, notice how how content everybody is. Everybody's so content. Nobody wants to reach for the moon. Nobody wants to say, we can achieve more. We can understand things. There's no scientist saying, this is fascinating and i need six guys to help me build this super collider you know in kent that part, or anything that, like that 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 part really uh that was the first one that actively distressed me and this may just be my personal thing but it's when um is it ellen who talks about how they don't need books anymore right mm-hmm. that, that guy and the thing is this this is this is true for most people right but and he i think he's addressing a real issue that's very sad brian most people don't need books. Yeah. They don't need them. They're not all that interested in them. And you know what? Maybe that's a good thing because, you know, not every, it, you know, somebody has to clean the toilets. 
Uh, and if you're if you're happy with that, and I wasn't I wasn't thinking of that. I thought you were going to go in a different direction, which is that people have other sources for uh, entertainment and instruction. They turn to, abs- that too, and, that yeah. too. But, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in this book. That's what really surprised me. Um, uh, you know, there's um, there's a fascinating series of articles and books by uh, Hakim Bey, um, where he argues he's the founder of the uh, temporary autonomous zone idea, among other things. And he, he argues that we should, um, he, he called this imminentism, that we should be, we should pay more attention to the things that we can experience immediately. So, you know, the mm. dinner that you can make with your friends, the um, garden that you can plant, um, books that you can make with your hand, like William Morris celebrated, um, and stories you can tell. Um, and the things that are mediated, we should place less emphasis on. So like a Hollywood film is not, uh-huh, yeah. shouldn't be as important to you as, say, the movie that you and three friends make with a, uh, a videotape. Um, and they, it, they explicitly re- mentioned Grimm in here, right? The Grimm uh, brothers Grimm. Right. That's when I started getting really depressed. I mean, I love, I love the brothers Grimm. I, I think it's fantastic, but what you don't get is you don't get the creation of a new culture. They're, they don't have folklore about the continent. They don't have new religions. They don't have new art. Um, all the cultural creativity seems to have stopped at 1900 and then, race backwards i mean you don't get the the art that's described is very bland it's all delicate it's well traced you don't get a sense of new colors or new shapes or new styles the people who are illiterate in this case or who just don't read books they don't talk about new stories they don't talk about new songs in fact the art is from the brothers grin they've gone backwards Mm -hmm. again and that's Mm -hmm. that that really distresses me um, and, and I can imagine that happening if you remove that whole structure of everyday life. Yeah, this is that, a problem that, generally in science fiction oh, now it. where it, it, those are things are harder to imagine than maybe like a new tech. Um, yeah. Or yeah, even sometimes tech, like if you like, like tech yeah. sometimes is stuck when we, we imagine what we have now and we push it forward a little bit, you know. Right. I think there's. I heard this question asked, like, why didn't science fiction writers ever imagine the internet in like in the fifties, forties? They kind of did, but it was yeah. actually earlier than that. But also, they they did. What they don't do is they don't like even Heinlein did. He has a version of the internet in Friday. Um, okay. Now you could argue that it's not the internet, and I think you could argue successfully. Because he basically makes it a, you know, you want to look something up, you have to pay for every search, and right, and, and is uh, some human operators. Um, but the thing is, is what you don't get from that is you don't get the internet culture usually in the way, like I guess Orson Scott Card sort of got forums, right, in Ender's Game. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but you, you, what we don't get is the rich depth of, you know, troll culture. <laughs> Although oh, you gosh. could argue maybe uh, Locke is a troll <laughs> who ends up being, you know, running the world or whatever. Well, and maybe may, maybe, he's, maybe he's just much more f- full of foresight than, than we give him credit for. Yeah, the, the cultural things are the tricky ones. I mean, there's, a, there's a saying attributed to Paul Anderson, uh, which was that the easy thing to imagine is the car. The hard and important thing is to imagine the traffic jam. Um, right. and, and I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Devin. I mean, there's, a, there are, writer, there are exceptions. You know, you, you think about people like Olaf Stapledon, um, uh, Samuel Delaney, who actually makes that a point in some of the stories talking about how, um, 
it's really dumb to think of a planet having one single culture when really it's it's covered with multiple ones mixed under that. Uh, you think of the '60s, uh, ver- the British and American New Wave uh, writers who, uh, who who do this, and of course the great Philip K. Dick who keeps inventing mm-hmm. insane new fashions and all this stories. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's it. I, I think it's partly the genre. I mean, you if you if you go if you take the Gernsback model, you know, we're gonna take something new, scientific, and we're gonna make it the corner of a story. And then around that corner, we're going to wrap an adventure story. Okay, then, yeah, you're not going to get as much in the, in the way of culture. But, but for Morris, this is a guy who invented culture. I mean, yeah, yeah and, and the thing is, is utopianism is not really exactly science fiction either, right? So w- w- this feels much more like, I mean, that subtitle, uh, An Epoch of Rest, as opposed to, you know, uh, labor house what are they workhouses right right where everybody's everybody in the in the uh, the reason sherlock holmes could do his job is he can tell by looking at people what their job is right mm-hmm. he, he can he says that is the uniform of a, a valet not a butler <laughs> that is that is the uniform of a coachman not a footman and we don't dress like that i mean some people do still for certain jobs right Police still have uniforms, but not everybody has a uniform for their job like that. And there's a there's a kind of um, ridiculousness about this novel that makes it. I, I mean, I think he knows he's winking at us the whole time with the, the guy being William Morris at the beginning of the novel, and and then coming out how he how that coming out of the novel at the end is anticipated and anticipated throughout. The, the back half of the book maybe maybe it's asymmetrical um because there's that i mean i think as a narrative this is this is pretty weak um but there's some great scenes there's some great yes bits. and there's just one i just want to read this because i think we have a victorian version of the new soviet man um and this is when there's that heartbreaking twilight zone like moment where guest is no longer seen by people even though he's right in front of them it's right. a beautiful, eerie, eerie scene. But then he sees a man. Uh, okay, I'm working from a Kindle edition, so this is the last, last few pages. It was a man who looked old, but whom I knew from habit, now have forgotten, was not really much more than 50. His face was rugged and grimed rather than dirty. His eyes dull and bleared. His body bent, his calves thin and spindly, his feet dragging and limping. His clothing was a mixture of dirt and rags long over-familiar to me. As I passed him, he touched his hat with some real goodwill and courtesy and much servility. Inexpressibly shocked, I hurried past him. So that's, that's what the Victorian era is doing to humans. That's what it's making out of us. And I think Morris is saying, well, what if we just totally reorganize all those relations? Then we won't have this guy. You know, that won't be us. Um, and I, I think in many ways that's, that's a positive, a positive idea prompt to take away from this and also to to make us look back and say, okay, you know, this isn't natural and eternal. Evan, as you were saying, these are recent developments. These are historically paying attention. This poor bastard was made by his time. Um, if we can change the time, then we don't necessarily have to have this. You know, what's become the next paragraph is the black cloud overhead. Mm-hmm. Like a nightmare of my childish days. I want to uh, go back to that last line of the paragraph previous. 
As I passed him, he touched his hat with some real goodwill and courtesy and much servility. Well, servilities because of his his status in the in the world, the, the class the class uh, situation, right. goodwill, but real goodwill. And that this is the thing that struck me when I started watching that uh, show called um, Upstairs Downstairs. Yeah. You guys seen Upstairs Downstairs? Yeah. I think they remade it, but I'm talking about the original. Yeah. Um, what what struck me about Upstairs Downstairs is is uh, I, I was much more interested in the downstairs folks, um, but it is about both. And the the people upstairs are you know they're just rich, and so they can they have their problems, but their problems are rich people's problems, and the poor people's problems are poor people's problems. And there's a speech I guess that the butler gives to uh, one of the footmen or, or something. And what's funny is they remade this show, right, as um, uh, what, something, Downton Abbey, right? And they changed the ethos <laughs> of it completely, which is hilarious because I, I, I think it's a fantasy of a fantasy. Whereas I think Upstairs Downstairs really has an interesting point in this speech. He says... They are our betters, he says, the butler says. They are our betters. And yes, there are things we won't speak about, you know, when they're having a scandal upstairs where the daughter's having sex with somebody she shouldn't or whatever, right? But they are our betters. And there is great honor and beauty in doing your job well, even though you're a servant and you get paid like shit and work all the time, right? And and a part of, I think, the, the ethos of that is... It's it's true. It's just taking taking pleasure in doing a job well, even if it's not the greatest job. You know, if you're gonna scrub a toilet, scrub it well, right? Make sure it's really clean. And this is, yeah, somebody's gonna come shit all over it, but you really gotta take pleasure in it because, for one thing, you have to find dignity in your own work, but also there's someone out there who can replace you like that, right? And that, so you have to sort of do it for two reasons. So that line where he says, um, he says, uh, he touched his hat with some real goodwill and courtesy, not just the servility of a, a, an oppressed mass. And this, this whole idea is this is why the, the British didn't have a, another revolution after their first one, right? Uh, while the French and the Russians and everybody else is revolting, the British somehow managed to make their lower classes okay with the fact that they're lower classes. Well, this is, I think you're really onto something, Jesse here. And I I was thinking a lot when I read this, because I couldn't get Bellamy out of my mind. And, Mm -hmm. and I was trying to understand kind of as a historian, not, not so much more as responding to Bellamy kind of in a, in a debate as much as like two cultural contexts, having a discussion about utopia. And, I think with Bellamy, I, part of the issue is, I, I think, the American Revolution and the nature of it, which in many ways was a revolution in social relations, because they weren't overthrowing just the monarchy, but the whole aristocracy and the whole idea that people are ranked and people have these positions, whether they're based on their profession or their blood, right? And that's that's partially what they were trying to get away from. and. And there's a great book about this called The Radicalization of the American Revolution, which talks about the revolution as really radical because it was challenging these 
these kind of social hierarchies that are kind of implanted. And there's different works that get at this. Of course, America had slavery, and that's actually part of the story, which I don't know if we have time to all get into. But it's like how the word master is replaced with the word boss in in the new world. Right, because that's more that's like somehow more egalitarian in a way. Now, put this I, these ideas in the context of a working class coming to terms with industrialization in these two worlds. In Britain, you kind of have these hierarchies fairly well established already. And so when industrialization comes in, people are maybe more groomed to fit into these roles. Like, you know, even E.P. Thompson's wonderful book, The Make, Making of the English Working Class, right, let, leads you to think that class is something that's more, it's easier for the British. It was easier for the British to deal with. Americans couldn't. And so when America became industrial, there were, the working class in America was always fighting against rank in a way. And that's one reason I think the American labor movement was so violent and contentious and, you know, struggled prone. It's, it's interesting. And Bellamy's obsessed with like the struggle between labor and capital throughout. And that's what we got behind. We got beyond that in a way through the industrial army and this kind of organized planned society he imagines. But, you know, when I, when I read Bellamy, I'm always thinking about this American working class that's discontent with being workers. Right. And it's the same way. Even now, people, even if they're relatively poor by overall standards, you know, in the in the wealth hierarchy of, of America, they'll still say that we're, we're middle class. Right. We're you, not really working class. So you don't hear that term as much in the U.S. There's the, there's the euphemism you use. You say uh, upper middle class. You yeah. say that as the rich. Right. Um, yeah. But no, I, I, you, you both you see this is the limitation of an audio medium, audio only medium. You can't see me nodding vigorously and pumping my fist mm-hmm. in the air. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, Evan, you're, you're absolutely right. And this has been a I'm not an Americanist, I mean, uh, so it's yeah, it's for yeah. me, I feel kind and of. I'm innocent. not. I'm not a British. I don't know British history, so. Well, but but for the American context, it's it's interesting that there's always been this tension between you know we overthrew a, an aristocracy, we set up a republic, and we from the beginning talked about lowercase r republican virtues, trying to echo Rome among other things, but we also still love our aristocracy. I mean, there was this, um, you know, we we have. People, and it's it's a bipartisan thing. You've got the Democrats who love their Kennedys and now love their Clintons, and you have the Republicans who love their Bushes and and so on. Um, in fact, there was this really interesting bit uh, last month. If I can show my politics for a second, um, Bernie Sanders' son was running for office in New Hampshire, and a Boston Globe reporter asked him, "How come you're not campaigning for him?" And the response was, "We don't do aristocratic politics in our family." Wow. So I thought, yes, yes, but but you know, but that's but that's but America, we're we're shifting, and this is what Jesse, what what you said just blew me away. The original upstairs downstairs is from 1970, um, and that was towards the end of the least unequal period in British, American, Canadian, and uh, Australian history. You know, that period goes from roughly 1975, 1945 to about 1980. Um, that was when we were the least unequal economically. And since then, we've become ever more unequal, and nothing has slowed that down. So when you move from upstairs downstairs, where they can say that, to Downton Abbey, 
Downton Abbey is a celebration of aristocracy. Yeah. It's one of the things I, I find, it know, is fun. so. I mean, even I, even the the lower classes people, they you know, it it's just ridiculous. It, it's it's a fantasy. It, it is, and it's one that's so well suited for our time. It's like Sex in the City, the idea that you know we all have access to tremendous wealth. And if you don't have access to the tremendous wealth in your real life, you can just suck down that fantasy and enjoy it. I, I do a um, in my work. I, I work in the future of education, and I present different scenarios. And one of them I have is called the Downton Abbey scenario. And whenever I play that, whenever I show the image of that, I say that the audience always cheers up. They're always so happy. They smile. Yes. And I say, no, no, no. It's not about beautiful frocks. It means you're the help. And then they get really sad. Um, but, <laughs> But I think I think that's a, that's a sign of our it's an expression of our acculturation that we've we've moved to extreme inequality um, and we've moved to the life where that beggar or worker or whatever he is can look upwards with real servility uh, with servility and and some intention. There's last thing Jesse knows I always mention World War One. Um, there's this quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald where he said that World War One was fought as a love affair and that could never be fought again. And what he's yeah. referring to is that class relations going into 1914 were so stable. Uh, you know, the, uh, Morris talks about the Trafalgar Square incident. Right. Um, yeah. And that was like really, really puny. If you think about police brutality, that that was really, you know, the great comedian uh, Bill Hicks. Yeah. Yeah. He has that routine about British crime and how pathetic it is. I mean, Trafalgar, the Trafalgar thing was that people got beaten up. I mean, okay, that's bad, but, you know, coming up is 1914 um, and 1917. Uh, and I, I think, you know, this is right. If it's the, the huge mobilization that could take people into World War I and then carry them through that for four unbelievable years, it frayed that, that love. And that love wasn't possible afterwards. And you can see this through the sociology of every nation involved, except for the U.S., because we only came at the end. Um, and, and it broke in some cases. The French had massive mutinies that broke their army in 1917. Obviously, you know. It broke Russia. Russia yeah, had Germany, too, at the end. And Germany? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they disposed of the Kaiser. Germany he says, I'm done. They, they, we're not doing kings no more. Right. Of all countries, Germany's army mutinies? I mean, think about that. That's one of the most radical things possible. And then they spend the next 15 years constantly going through coup attempts, uh, low-grade civil war, armies marching through their former dominions. I mean, um, you know, that that broke. Um, but Morris' Morris's look at 1890, that's that love affair still there. I, I think, Jesse, you're absolutely right to get that line about real love right there. That's so important. And so I want to uh, just talk about one other book that I thought of. I think, Evan, you brought up the word boss. And that yeah. made me think of another thing I was thinking about during reading this book uh, is a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by oh, yeah. Mark Twain. It yeah. came out the year before this book, 1889, and it's about like uh, an American boss who goes to a, a medieval setting, right, um, and makes himself boss and he starts fixing things right he starts turning it into the 19th century america with telegraphs and it's the i mean as a book it's a thousand times better than than this although this is a very fun interesting read um it it you know connecticut yankee is a classic for the ages um because of how funny it is there, there's a few touches of humor in this book uh i i guess i tweeted i think i forgot to include you evan 
um, the part where <laughs> they go by the Houses of Parliament. And he says, oh, they're still there. And he says, Dong. do you use them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we use them for storing manure. <laughs> All right and proper. Right? <laughs> it's just the, the uh, one of the two or three points in the book where I like, oh, that's cute. Um, but Connecticut Yankee is so savage in its its um, its takedown of all things American and also everybody who thinks of the medieval period as a romance. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if uh, Morris would have read it, but I think he might have been offended at how. Sat, uh, full of satire it is but uh, the reason I, I, I thought of this at all is because Hank Morgan um, you know the, the guy who falls asleep and wakes oh, gets knocked on the head and then wakes up in uh, in medieval land is, um, is called the boss right and he's going to run things and the thing is, is that uh, why isn't somebody wandering in like if it wasn't William Morris or William Guest who wakes up in this period, why doesn't he come and he say, "Okay, you guys over there, you can come help me do this stuff over here," and maybe they could defect, but then he just gets a stick and starts hitting them, right? What? There's no outlaws, there's no bandits, there's no this this fantasy world can only come into existence if everybody is an artist who's <laughs> who's uh, not determined to. Um, you know, just live and let live. We just, you know, everybody be cool. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you both. Um, I mean, one reason to think about this book is because of the renewed interest in universal basic income. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I think that that must've been part of my interest in this book. Well, do you, well, and, and Canada is one of the, uh, great explorers in that field in the 1970s with the uh, Manitoba income project called, mm-hmm. um, um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, having read and reflected on this book, what is, can this tell us anything about universal basic income? I, th- I think it must. I, I think, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'll, I'll let Evan, you go first, but. Oh, I, well, I, I think it's, it's a decent response to this question of why would people work? I think when people depend on their work to survive for so long, it, they associate these two things together, right? Like, and then the belief that if we give people money, they won't work. I think it's easy to understand from like a capitalist culture point of view. And that, that's why I'm kind of still on the side of cultural revolution. I understand its problems. I know we normally associate it with China, but it's kind of throughout all of Marxist thought, yeah. right? That you change the economy, the culture changes along with it. And as a historian, I just can't get away from, you know, we, you know, like go back to the Romans, right? They they saw the world entirely differently than we did. There's, it's it's hard to find these essential human characteristics throughout history. But anyways, um, I I like this book in part just to get to the point. I, I like this book because it it appreciates the idea that people do find pleasure in being useful and productive and, mm-hmm. you know, helping one another and, and kind of working in their communities. Cause I don't know. I, I think that's the only way we can really sell basic income in, in basic income is if we can make this argument that, that there's a purpose to life outside of like working like a wage, I guess. Yes. Absolutely. That's not very articulate. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you you did a good job. This is a hard subject. 
I, mm-hmm. I, I always think about how um, the ultimate outcome of our current situation is not going to be, uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, what we see in this book. But I do think it's going to be a lot more like E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops because I'm oh. already close to how that is now. You know, I live in my hexagon and I do a podcast. <laughs> I talk about Australian music uh, in the 18th century or whatever it is. It's my podcast and I have six listeners, right? <laughs> that uh, that The idea that everybody's going to have a podcast one day, I, I don't think that that's at all true. But I do think that uh, as... We a lot of people will be parents. That's the thing. A lot of people will be parents and sure, and children that, that, and that makes you not have a podcast, right? I yeah, one of my friends, he says, I'm starting one as soon as the, my oldest moves out, right? You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you can't start it while you've got other things going because you don't have time. You have to deal with all the problems. Evan, how do you think? How do you think that would change? Do you think uh, UBI would mean more people having more children or changing how we raise children? Well, I. I live in a society with declining birth rates. You know, sure. it's it's similar to Japan. Like right now, I'm in Taiwan. I think China. I don't. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't been there in a while, so I don't know. But in in Taiwan, it's really the case in Korea and Japan, and I think it's in Russia and Eastern Europe too, where you know yes. birth rates are declining. And I think about this a lot in the Taiwanese context, where young couples they're very they don't have any money because wages are so low here. So they often live with their parents. And the evidence of this is every single like hotel has two-hour rates. And you think this is for affairs, and I'm sure that's partially why that's, that, that might be part of it. But I think a lot of it is just young married couples needing to get away you know, for a while. From their parents, yeah. Yeah. Who and they live and then the other thing is they're just working so long. They have these long work days, and they don't have a time together. And even if they do work all day, they don't have much to show for it that they, you know, when they balance their checkbook at the end of the month. And so it's very hard for them to imagine having kids, but they might like to. Now, of course, I think to some degree, I, I think it's good that – women are freer in choosing when they have kids and, and how big their family is. That's certainly progress. But when you see people who would like to have kids or like to have families but can't because of their work schedule or money or time, you know, it's it's kind of sad, I think. And I think that's a very important job. I'm, I'm a father, and I've been a kind of a stay-at-home father for a number of years now. Seems, it seems if you look at the, you know, outside the United States and you just look mm-hmm. at places that have, like, you know, one of my cousins is in, uh, was in hospital uh, last week. She's, uh, she's, looks like she's got a really bad cancer. The fact that, you know, the big thing, my complaint in the, in the fake complaint tweet was um, that the, the TV was a CRT, you know, in her hospital room and you have to pay like $70 or something for the, for the CRT oh. television <laughs> that has, you know, regular broadcast television on it. But um, other than that, everything else is free. And the fact that, you know, she works at Walmart, which is a terrible, terrible employer. You know, she's worked there for like 20 years um, and yet she has her own apartment. Uh, it's, you know, subsidized. Um She's uh, disabled, but she has a working she she has a working life. She doesn't have any kids. Um, this is a, a constraint of being poor. Absolutely, people who are rich tend to have a couple of kids, and then they give them to nannies, right? Mm-hmm. It's if we look at what what money does, is it allows people to have at least a couple of kids, um, but they don't tend to have fifteen, so that they can work those fields better and hope hope that that 
one of them's going to help them in their old age. Um, and they also have access to birth control if they're rich, right? Which is a real issue. Um, but absolutely, universal basic income will help as long as you remember that government's really good at doing one thing, which is mailing checks, right? Yeah. I, I, when I was uh, in high school, um, my father was dead, and I was planning to go to college anyway. So I only had one parent. Uh, that's one income. And then when I started going to college, I started realizing, oh, I get money from the government. I, I think about this. I got money from the government every time I went to college uh, for a semester. I'd get uh, uh, $150 in the mail every month, right? And that was to help because college wasn't free. It was cheaper. It's It was cheaper than it is now, but it, it was cheap, basically, in that I could have a part-time job and go to college Um as not somebody who was born, you know, with a, a, a trust fund or anything like that. Although I did, I did inherit some money. I didn't use it to. Um, uh, this less important. The important part is money totally helps, especially when it's coming in. And that Mac Reynolds novel, um, that the, the, one of the things that he deals with that's so interesting, and I, I really want somebody to bring it in, back into print or make an audiobook out of it, um, is that. Every month, the way the guaranteed universal income he he employs it, he he has it. You have to spend the money, or you don't get it the next month. Like you can't accumulate money. All you can do is like spend it. Yeah, so this was the idea of um, during the Great Depression in the United States. There was this guy Townsend. He had this idea mm -hmm. to basically this was before Social Security, before Roosevelt um, did the Social Security. The idea was to basically give checks. I think his plan was to give it just to old people, but. You know, everyone, if you're over a certain age, but they had to spend it. They couldn't. Yeah, it couldn't be saved. It's good for the economy. I mean, yeah. that's that's uh, if, if you think of what uh, if, if the economy is predictability that we're not going to suddenly, you know, uh, have a recession. That's what a lot of people are worried about and the, what, how much they're going to save. Right. If you have uh, Bitcoin that goes into your Bitcoin account. Right. Um, and then disappears if it's not spent. You know, back to the coffers of the government, that will encourage a certain amount of spending. Um, but if it's uh, an excessive amount, it'll, you know, have deformational effects on the economy. So, if if they do universal basic income as not just like we're canceling uh, social insurance now, you have to pay an insurer. That's actually going to hurt everybody in the end, right? Government's really good at at, at regulating on behalf of of everyone what the what the hospital rate would be or the doctor you know rate doctors in canada still make a living um they just don't employ as many technicians to extract uh, money from the insurance companies and the insurance like it's just such so much more efficient that even with wait times everybody's happier with the with the health care we have up here totally needs to be applied to other areas you know we don't have full dental and we don't have any dental insurance uh medicare system dental care mm -hmm. and we should have because if you applied the same logic there it's not like people are gonna <laughs> suddenly go out and eat, eat more uh candy because they ah, this government's gonna pay for it right? jesse did you <laughs> any more that they're gonna smoke smoke more because they're not worried about their health jesse did you see did you hear that uh sam harris podcast with um the universal basic income presidential candidate I don't know when was it. Was it? I haven't heard a recent one. A couple of months ago, I think. 
Yeah, I think I heard of it, but I didn't listen to it. Yeah, that's the one thing he mentioned. That, uh, Jerry Yang, I think, is the uh, guy. Yeah. So he mentioned okay. someone said, um, you know, well, why would you trust the government to do yeah. so? The government can famously be impractical and efficient. He said, well, one thing the government does really well is send out checks. Um, it's true. It's true. Um, government does do that incredibly well, and 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 almost. I mean, it's like the post office. People think the some some idiot was talking about how the post office was a you know. Oh yeah, it was Dave Rubin. What an idiot Dave Rubin is. He's the guy who goes around. This is what really hurt Jordan Peterson in my estimation, other than some really stupid tweets, um, was that he hangs out with Dave Rubin, who's who's such an idiot. He goes on Joe Rogan and he just starts saying, you know, uh, you don't need like plumbing regulations or housing regulations because that all take care of itself with reputation. It's like, no, the reason <laughs> you have these regu- government regulations is so we don't wreck things because we've proven, you know, when you go to places without those regulations that the buildings collapse all the time and they catch on fire and there's no sprinkler systems and, and people cut corners because... Because, as Joe Rogan put it, he said it was like, um, yeah, people don't take pride. Some people will take pride in their work, but they also want to make money, right? So, like, one of the things that's in this book, William Morris goes on about a bit at the beginning of the book, is he says um, all the products being made are designed to be sold, and they don't even need to... They're makeshifts, right? That was his word for it. Mm-hmm. It'll do for the moment, right? So you buy a jacket and you wear it twice and then the seams start coming off, right? <laughs> okay, I guess I bought a jacket, but I don't feel very satisfied. And that whole, I, I remember reading about how, you know, when pop, you know, um, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the history of soda and, you know, co- colas and all that stuff. Because it's, it's a, it comes out of the 19th century uh, health health uh fads and yet it's still around with us and one of the things that happened early on in an economics class i took was they talked about who is responsible when uh somebody puts too much phosphoric acid in in the uh in the pop because phosphoric acid gives a a nice bite to the flavor right you get just like every if you look at any pop today it says citric acid in it phosphoric acid does the exact same job but if you put in too much people's teeth melt Right, mm-hmm. and who's who's responsible? Is it the corner store owner or the the guy? The fa- who do you sue? Well, you sue everybody, and that's a really inefficient system. Or you could just say, have the government say, look, you can't put more than this amount of phosphoric acid in, or you get a big fine, and that solves like a lot of problems. Now the phosphoric acid melting teeth problem's gone away, right? I mean, mostly gone away in that you still phosphoric acid in was bad for your teeth, but still. You know, it, it wasn't like you drink one cup and suddenly your teeth, front teeth are missing. Have we talked about a soul of man under socialism in a different context? I have some memory of talking about Oscar Wilde, oh. but maybe it wasn't with you. Um, no, I don't. I don't have you guys read that. this? No. It's 1891. Ago. It's an essay he wrote, and he he's kind of like Morris in that he's kind of this libertarian leftist, social, you know, communist. Uh, but... So he has this idea that, you know, social, he doesn't really fully define what socialism would be in practice, whether it's basic income or gift economy or something. But his ba- main idea is it kind of frees us from having to be charitable. 
It frees us from having to worry about other people. It frees us having, from having to be good fathers, good husbands, or good neighbors. And we could just be like artists. <laughs> we could just be artists, right? Or and I, I thought a little bit about that with with Morris because everyone's kind of a craftsman and artist in in this in this novel. Uh, is this a satire? No, it's, he's completely serious here. I think this is just from Wikipedia. In okay, Wilde argues that under capitalism, quote, the majority of people spoil their lives by an unhealthy and exaggerated altruism. Are forced, indeed, so to spoil them, instead of re- realizing their true talents. They waste their time solving the social problems by capitalism without taking their common cause away. Thus, caring people seriously and very unsentimentally or very sentimentally set themselves to the task of remedying the evils that they see in poverty. But their remedies do not cure the disease. They merely prolong it. So the proper aim is then to destroy the cause of charity, the need for charity, which would be inequality, poverty, capitalism, whatever. But there's a notice that that's what super rich people always do, right? In in the movies, they always they're they're having a charity ball for the poor, right? And then I I mean that's what the whole Clinton Foundation is is basically supposed to be, right? Um, Turns out that uh, most of the money seems to end up in some rich people's pockets. We're all being good people here instead of creating things. We just spend money and then you know, and then everything's uh, we don't. It solves the soul, right? Yeah. But I think this works outside of just we, you know, we we could this liberates us from this kind of the day to day struggles of life, whether it's caring for, like I think there's this idea of charity of caring for the unknown, but I think for a while it went even deeper, like even caring for one's child or one's spouse or the family members, right? That's a big burden in our lives, right? Like if my parents get ill, I have to kind of yeah yeah, you know, stop all my plans, go back and care for them because. You know, I live in any, you know, or my parents at least live in an economy that doesn't care, you know, what happens to them really at right. the end of the day. So I would be a freer person. And it's kind of I, I like this argument, you know, when you talk to people on the on the right who don't like social, but they see it as like this huge state burden on people. Right. The state's mm-hmm. going to control things. But Wilde's trying to get at how it's it's a way to liberate people from things that are on our mind a lot. Like, uh, well, yeah, that really, if, I mean, I, I think of my my niece, she has a dog. The reason she has a dog is because her mom got a dog, and now she has a dog. And she can't, like, go to u- university full time uh, if it means leaving the dog at home, right? <laughs> and that sentiment, I mean, just think of how many people have the, the, the rise of pet stores, right? Mm-hmm. When drive around the streets of my community or walk around the streets of my community, almost every block there's some sort of pet service store. This is the replacement for children because children are too expensive. <laughs> the burden is, is longer and much higher. So it's a it's a replacement child, and everybody can have one pretty much. Have but, you seen the, uh, the stickers that people have in their cars which says, uh, my children have uh, fur or like, yeah, fur babies. That's what yeah. they call them, right? Well, this is um, notice how that that's completely missing. I don't think there's a single pet in this book. No, I was really surprised by this as an ecological text that we um, at the very end there's this note about birds that there might be more birds of prey, but he wasn't sure. Um, it's it's very strange. There's no there's there's very little description of how this could work. I mean, I'm I guess I'm biased. I mean, you go back. Uh, 
you know, the other end of the century, Percy Shelley has this fantastic, insane poem called The Revolt of Islam, which is a dystopia with a revolution built in. And uh, a key part of the dystopia is ecological, that uh, that dystopia manages to manage things so badly that you see a kind of collapse of the ecosystem worked down by species by species. Um, but here, uh, Morris just kind of leaves it out. It's like... It's like three men in a boat. I, I hadn't realized it's like three men in a boat. The anarchist communalist version. Yep. Yeah. And it's it's so funny that like uh, this can only really happen. You know, the whole society can only really happen in England, where the most dangerous thing you could ever encounter is a badger, right? <laughs> and here, if if you say let's let's just all like uh, last week, uh, a bear wandered into the mall underneath, uh, you know, a couple blocks away from my where I live into the parking lot because it's too hot outside right so it goes into the and it's just like wandering and yesterday because of all the people with pets everybody has pets now right uh dog or cat or uh whatever and you see all these signs that say i like literally saw a couple signs that said you know missing kitten missing dog missing cat and then <laughs> driving to work i saw a uh i saw a um a coyote just like in somebody's front yard, the, the, when you push down on one p- part of the society and say, this is not going to happen, or nobody does this anymore, some other shit is rising up somewhere else, right? The the effects are... He, he seems to sort of... Uh, and maybe that's why I'm, I have such criticism of it, is that he doesn't seem to care about e- e- the sort of economic cost in the way I would want to care. It's like, let's make this real. He's more like... I really like the idea of craftsmanship and caring about your work and spending time on the river and and sculling and beautiful women and and art. I love art. And also, um, uh, let's have some lectures about how bad it was in the 19th century because it was bad back then. Uh, and I'm like, no. But what about like you know if you if you make all this these peaceable people with no army and no police, and there's a famine in uh, in France. You know, he says, no, France is just like this, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like the whole idea uh, that they're worried about. Communism, is, if you take it seriously, is they have to, we have to invade. This is why the Iron Curtain and, you know, even today, NATO, right? The idea is, I don't know why NATO is still around today, but, that you know, we got to stop the Soviets, right? Because they're going to roll through Western Europe and so that they can make everything like communists. So then, then, then the government can wither away, right? But dystopias can't wither away until it's just ridiculous. But dystopias are are kind of the inverse of that. Like so, Orwell's novel, which I have a bunch of problems with, um, you know, makes the same problem, right? Like everywhere is the same, right? Well, we don't we don't actually see the other places, right? Yeah, but we're told about them. Is that? But it's always like a global catastrophe, right? That like the road, even like. There's no place. There's no escape from it. That's the dystopia works because no one can escape it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the road is a dystopia. It's certainly hell, but yeah. it, it 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 doesn't really posit as sort of a, a system. Yeah, you're right. It's not a system. But all these post-apocalyptic literature. I guess I'm and the, and having a militaristic that. system. Like there is something like if you don't really address the truth of reality, that is violence is real and it's not going away it's because it's in animals too not just humans mm-hmm. right uh, if you don't address that 
really you're you're not doing something real. I don't think, and that I guess that's my big problem with this book is is he's just he's saying wouldn't it be nice if everybody got along and and he has all this violence at the beginning right or mm-hmm. at the beginning of to how they get there um and you know it sounds like some of his friends were beaten about the head and died in that yeah uh trafalgar incident right or yeah it's interesting what, what? bellamy just sort of jumps to it there's never an explanation about how they get there but morris spends sh- like several chapters Yes. In this kind of historical discussion of the process. I think that's one good thing about this book compared to but, uh, other even utopia. like uh, like just uh, immig- immigration. Like I was thinking, <laughs> you know, if uh, if you think of this guy as just the sole traveler without a passport entering this land, it's very easy to have a guest. Right. But when the Persians move into Greece and say, we own these lands now, we're going to work these fields with our size that are quite <laughs> beautiful. Um, what are you Greeks going to do about it? Uh, you know, he he has some sort of argument in here about how um, if the if the French invaded England, they couldn't squeeze the the British any harder than the the British landlords are squeezing the British. Otherwise, the people would have died. But sometimes that's the point. Like this is mm-hmm. kind of a naive novel, and that like that's what Hitler's trying to do, yo. He's trying yeah. to, he's trying to like kill off the population and make room for more Aryans to breed. That's like what he's doing. And you can't solve that by saying, you know, he, they, we wouldn't be motivated to, it's, it's very rational, you know, uh, rationalistic rather than empiricistic, I guess. It, it, it's, it's, it, which is funny because the rest of the paper is really dealing with real issues that like, let's get that eight hour work week in and, and these labor conditions are Ill, not just immoral they're actually illegal and we got us protest and like he's actually very hard-headed in the rest of the paper but here he seems to be just tackling one idea only and that is there actually is motivation to work outside of uh forced labor well speaking of motivation to work i'm going to need to get back to mine um all right okay (laughs) <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Yeah. It's required, right? <laughs> it, it is required. I've got, uh, among other things, I've got to get this uh, book into my editor by the first. Um, so I got to keep moving. Um, but, keep scything. Yeah, that's right. I'll keep scything away. We're doing the opposite, kind of. Um, it's great. Reaping. Uh, no, uh, sowing. Sowing, indeed. Well, it's been nice. Yeah, and there, there's only reaping in this book. There's no sowing. Well, it's the wrong time of year. It was June. I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess. Well, it was really mm. sowing and reaping with both of you. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Is the Indian Pacific region today? Uh, smoky, um, but I don't know. It's I think it's going to be 35 degrees on Monday, which is crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, we had some really bad uh, smoking problems. Yeah, our air quality is down to moderate, which is which is good. What's the? Is this all smoke coming from California? No, it's oh, provinces on fire. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's no danger of my apartment being burned down but 
we're in a valley uh, and the prevailing wind is just not working for us. Well, doesn't it make you want to like go down the Thames in a boat to escape? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, England doesn't have very many trees to burn, right? <laughs> not now. Evan, you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so, uh, Marissa's not joining us, Mr. Jim Moon's not joining us, and uh, Eric is not joining us, so it's just us three. All right. Um, Hello, Evan. Oh, How are you doing, Brian? You guys okay. been on a podcast together? I don't remember. Yeah, we were Jack London. Ah, oh, yes, of course. There you go. The Earl Labor book. Uh-huh. Right. Um, well, uh, why don't we do a show on this? I don't know how much time you guys have, but um, I want to use it to the maximum. Yeah, um, it's not a problem. I'm I'm still a bit jet lagged. I don't know. When you get older, does it take longer? Or I think every, everything's more difficult as you get older. No, I. Uh, I have to go to China tomorrow. Oh God. Where did you Where did you just fly to and from? Well, I was in Wisconsin for six, seven weeks, like I am every summer. But went back to Taiwan, dropped oh. off my daughter, and then, you know, I've been here for the last four days, five days, but tomorrow I'm off to China to start my new job. Where in China? Hangzhou. Where is that? It's probably an hour by train out of, in, you know, inland from Shanghai. Okay. It's... it's it's kind of a more cultural place. Shanghai is more business, and uh-huh. yeah. Shang, Hangzhou is a little bit nicer by Chinese standards. You're going to become so, our uh, expert on uh, communism pretty soon. <laughs> I already know a few things about it. I, know, I think the Chinese are pretty bad communists. <laughs> well, let's get into it. Well, market, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Morris would it would when he would yeah, would, Morris would despise China. He would. Yeah. All right. Well, well, let's let's save it for the podcast and get started and. Get right into it, all right? Uh, order. Here we go. All right, so uh, Jesse, Brian, Evan, okay? Sure. Here we Sounds go. Good.